0: Now I'm confused, are they six or seven? I've only been... Seven. <laughs> they have never changed, but oh well. All right, this morning, scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For those who understood, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Word of God, let us pray. Most Gracious God, Lord, we ask for your spirit to... Come to us this morning that he would enlighten us on the meaning of your words, that he would in fact give us wisdom as to how to understand this passage that we have before us, Father. We thank you that we have the opportunity gather to study your word, Lord, and we just pray, Father, that this opportunity would not be wasted, but we use it to encourage each other, that we use it to form our lives around, Lord, to live our lives in accordance with. And Father, I pray that the words I speak be not of myself, but be of you and glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as we look at this morning's passages, we see that these passages really are along the same lines as we've been dealing with throughout the prior weeks. And Paul continues this, to address this idea or notion of wisdom, of what it is what the differences are in godly wisdom and earthly wisdom and who can receive it and who cannot receive it. And for Paul to spend this much time dealing with this idea of wisdom and what is not wisdom, what is worldly wisdom and what is godly wisdom and the difference between the two, We can only presume that it had to be a very serious issue in the Corinthian church. I mean, he takes a lot of time to write about this issue. And I would propose to you that the Corinthian church isn't unlike the church today. And the church in general today throughout this nation and throughout the world. The the Corinthian church was floundering to carve its place out in the world didn't really know where it stood didn't really know how to survive as a church they had a difficult time they wanted to be perceived well by the world and it was their desire therein came the problems right i think it's problems in that church Problems in this church, problems in every church in the world, is we have a difficult time being in the world without being of the world. We want to be liked by the world. There's something that's innate within us as humans that want to be liked, that doesn't want to be different than other folks. And yet as we go back through the gospel, it's very clear that being a Christian is different. That being a Christian requires us to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. That we are a peculiar people that is different than the world. But too many times, and it was happening in Corinth, and it happens happens throughout the history of the church, and it's happening today, that we just try to fit in with the world where there's really not a lot of difference outside of those doors is what's on the inside of those doors and unfortunately there's a great danger with that and the danger is that we send the wrong message of what Christianity is what it requires and ultimately of salvation so I think we have to be careful I think the church at Corinth was headed down the wrong road and we're going to see this play out over the next few months just how worldly that church was they were so worried about being mocked being laughed at or being scoffed at that they changed who they were as a church they found that the path of least resistance was the path that they wanted to walk as Christians and we know that's not the path that Christ has called us to walk But as I've said so many times, being a Christian isn't for the faint of heart. And if you're here to check the box and get to heaven, you've missed out. You've missed out. It's a very difficult road. It's a hard life. And Christ warned us of that in the gospel. It causes us to make very difficult choices. Choices that are not popular with the world. Choices that may not be popular with those that we love. When Christ said, whoever loves his father and mother doesn't love me. We have to make him paramount in our lives. The church should make him paramount in our lives. It's not easy. It's not like being a member of the Rotary. Or Kiwanis. Or the Moose Lodge. Or Macy's. It's It's not like that. It requires everything that we have and are in life. No one died so that you could be a member of Kiwanis. God didn't send his son to be spat upon and crucified just to be part of a club. Being a Christian is something far different, far greater than because it changes who we are inside and out. It, it, it changes our identity. As Jesus told Nicodemus, we are born again. We are a new creation in Christ. We don't just pay a membership due and all of a sudden have a relationship with Jesus. It's not the way that it works. Unfortunately, many people come in search of answers that make life easier, right? And unfortunately, the churches today advertise that. If you want to have the greatest life or live your best life, y'all should probably recognize that punchline. If you want to live your best life, then come to my church. <laughs> Nowhere is that promised in the Bible. And in fact, I'm telling you that it's a very difficult life when you come to our church, when you come to the church of Christ. Because it requires much. But yet the church today, as the church at the time of Corinth, as different churches throughout the history of the church, in an attempt to either attract the world or make the world feel good about it or be a part of the world, advertises things that are attractive to the world. Instead of the very easy, simple idea and notion of Jesus and Him crucified. And I think that was what Paul was trying to say. When I came to you, I didn't preach a lot of lofty things. I didn't use big words. I didn't lie to you and say, you're going to be rich. You're going to be healthy. Everything and every desire that you have in this life is going to be provided to you. No. He came and Paul said, I came and preached nothing and knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. And with that comes difficult moments in our lives. Do we still suffer? Absolutely. I would argue that we suffer more. We still have pain. We still get cancer. We still lose those that are the closest to us. We deal with difficult things every day of our lives. But we have the promises, Tammy. We have the promises that the suffering in this life, Romans 8, aren't even to be compared with the glory that's going to occur in the future. And when we went through that in Romans, we saw that the sufferings in this life are the only judgment that we're going to receive for sin in this life. But the Corinthians, they weren't patient. Anybody here not patient? I'll raise my hand. It's hard. It's hard. It's extremely difficult to see that and to be able to change your life based on that supposition or idea or thought. God promises us that if we endure to the end then everything will be given unto us. Corinthians either didn't understand that principle, they didn't want to understand that principle, or they just became, as I said, impatient to that idea or notion. Pride. You've probably heard me mention it almost every message that we've had since we got into Corinthians. And pride ran deep in the church at Corinth. When pride runs deep, either in an individual or a church, then nothing else matters other than self. Nothing else matters other than self. And we've seen it play out in this church, and it plays out in a church through groups of individuals. Paul opened the letter to Corinth with some introductory comments, and then right after he makes those introductory comments, he begins, begins an all-out assault on pride all-out assault on me what can I get out of this what's best for me in this world and we saw that there was a lot of boasting going on in this church at Corinth they were boasting about everything but in particular Paul begins with talking about who baptized them We saw that there were those who were boasting or bragging about being baptized by Apollos, others Cephas or Peter. There were those who boasted and bragged about that Paul was their teacher or they were a disciple of Paul and others a disciple of Jesus. All of it stemming from pride, a desire to be right, a desire to be better than someone else. Well Cephas baptized me and You were baptized by Apollos. You're a second-class Christian. And Paul chides them for that. He admonishes them that there's no place for pride in the church. And to follow that up, there's no place for pride in a Christian life. Pride destroys the lives of individuals and as well as the lives of a corporate church or the existence of a corporate church. So Paul wrote very diligently about the pitfalls of pride. And he moves away from this discourse about who baptized who or who was following whom and who was the greatest teacher into a lengthy conversation or discussion about wisdom. And that's, he sort of begins it saying, I came to you not with eloquent, lofty words, But I came to you preaching nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And so that's how he begins this introduction or this conversation about wisdom. Paul demonstrates to them that earthly or human wisdom is of little to no benefit to them when it comes to God. And he begins that demonstration by telling them, the fact is, God didn't choose many of you because you were wise according to worldly standards. And instead, God chose the base things in life to shame the wise. You remember when we went through that. He demonstrates that he didn't choose them. And and why was that? Why was that part of God's plan? And we had a conversation about asking why God does whatever he does, and I will sort of encourage you that whenever you have a situation and you're, wanting or you're wondering, why did God do that? If you would always start with this basis or foundation of everything God does is for his glory and out of his love for us. And you could say, how does that glorify God? And so if you're trying to figure out or understand God and you start with that premise, it will tell you a lot about why God acts the way He does. Because if He acted in another way, it's probably going to glorify me. And that doesn't work well. So why does God choose the base things in life? Why does God choose what the world sees as foolish? Why does it shame the wise? so that he gets all the glory. Because with wisdom comes that P word again, right? With wisdom of man or earthly wisdom comes a whole lot of pride. Worldly wisdom carries with it a haughty spirit. And we see that then Paul continues and he never leaves this theme about the incompatibility of pride and the Christian life. And then last week we saw Paul laying out a foundation for who can receive the wisdom of God. And that's standing against the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of mankind. He makes it clear that not all wisdom is bad because he's just gone to great lengths to demonstrate to us we, wisdom is bad. But he says not all wisdom is bad because after all... God has it all. He is all knowing. He has all wisdom, all power. They're not bad in and of themselves. In and of themselves. Instead, godly wisdom should be coveted. Godly wisdom should be sought by us. However, we saw that godly wisdom can only be received by certain groups of people. And In verse 6 of the second chapter, Paul makes mention of those people, and he refers to them as mature. So mature people can only receive godly wisdom. And then we attempted to define or understand what it meant by being mature, and we we jumped down then to verse 13. And we made a connection between verse 6, the mature people in verse 13, and the people that were in or verse 6, and the people that were in verse 13 being spiritual people. And we said that the mature people are the spiritual people. And it is the spiritual people that can receive the godly wisdom. And we did that by jumping into Galatians 5. And so how did we define the spiritual people? Those whom the Holy Spirit was living within. Those who exhibited the fruits of the Spirit those who the Spirit of God had changed their lives so that they exhibited love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. All of those fruits of the Spirit. And that's where we find ourselves today. We're still looking at those who are mature and those who are spiritual. But verses 14 through 16 are going to explain and confirm Why only spiritual people receive godly wisdom. Verse 14. For the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, as we've seen so often, Paul begins and he starts us with two groups of people. We have two groups of people here. We have the natural person or the natural man that Paul is referencing. And we also have the spiritual person. So he sets them apart and distinguishes them. So we will start with the natural person. Who is this natural person and, and what does this person look like, so to speak? I think it's pretty clear that the natural person is merely a human being. Average, ordinary human being that lives on this earth. We are all born natural people. Now it is possible for us to be transformed from a natural person into a spiritual person. And that transformation is a resurrection of the spirit that is dead inside of the natural person. And it, that spirit being brought to life happens only as a result of God's work. A natural person is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He or she is not saved. That's where Paul is, or what Paul is getting at when he refers to them as natural persons. Paul says here that a natural person does not accept. things of God and I think it's important that we see that word accept in this sentence so when we hear the word accept in our minds we're thinking they hear something they they internalize it they make a judgment about it and they make a decision based on that judgment that they just made about whatever they heard right if I tell you something you're going to hear it you're going to listen to it hopefully and you're going to internalize it judge it and make a decision about it Either what you're going to do with that information, whether you believe it's a lie or the truth or something you should act on, or just disregard, right? That's what we do as human beings. This process happens in everybody. And here we see it happening in a natural person. When the natural person hears the message of the cross, they internalize it, they judge it, and they reject it. They do not accept the message of the cross or the things of the Spirit of God. Why is that? We see it there. Because for those types of things are folly or foolishness to the natural person. Silly to the natural person. We've seen this before, right? We saw it back up in chapter 1 when Paul's talking about God didn't choose many wise or many strong, but he talked about the wisdom of the world and those who are wise in the world, they believe that the message of the cross is folly or foolishness. So to this point, we've seen that the natural man rejects the things of the Spirit because he believes that they are folly or foolishness. Silly, so to speak. So the things of the Spirit of God, what are they? What are they? I would say that first they are, that there is a God, that God exists. And I would say that in many realms and in many of natural persons, men or women, you will find that the mere conversation about the existence of God, they laugh, mock, and scorn you for having that conversation. Because they don't believe that even God exists. That is folly and foolishness for them nor do they believe that there is an, eter- an eternity that is fully and fo- or yeah fully and follows. Ooh, folly and foolishness to them second that they are in need of a savior they don't believe that that is silly in their minds and thirdly that Jesus was the savior So as you see, as we've gone down that list, we've gotten a little bit further. And so while some of them may believe in a God, and that not being foolishness, the further we get to the cross and Jesus, it becomes rather silly in their their minds. So what stands in the way of their acceptance? We have that P word again, pride, pride. They believe that everything that they have and need for all their life is found within them. They don't need God. After all, they've got all everything figured out on their own. They don't need a savior, and they don't need a man who claimed to be God who died on a cross, because they can take care of it themselves. They can take care of everything that they need on their own. And finally, if you look, Paul says the natural man does not, so he rejects. He actively rejects the things of the Spirit of God for their folly or foolishness to him. And then it changes, for he is not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. So it goes from an active rejection on the person's part into an inability in this verse. They reject, but they cannot accept at all. So we have an issue there. We have a problem. What does it mean when Paul says he's, they're not even able They cannot even understand the things of God. Did God create mankind or the natural man with a disability of sorts such that it's impossible for everyone to understand the things of God? If he does, then doesn't that take away the moral responsibility that we have, right? If he creates a human being that absolutely cannot understand the things of God, then how can he find fault in that human being for not understanding the things of God, right? I hope you see the moral dilemma that you can get into when you look at that. I mean, that's why we believe when children are small and don't understand moral culpability and something happens to them that God doesn't hold them accountable. They don't have the wherewithal intellectually and mentally to understand right or wrong. When we have someone that's suffering from a mental disease or defect of sorts, we believe, as Christians, or many of us do, that something happens to them, God gives them a free pass. They're not held morally morally responsible for their inability to understand the things of God. And yet here we have Paul basically saying that the natural person does not because they cannot. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us with respect to the natural person? The natural person situation is a little bit different. The natural person's situation is a little bit different because while they are incapable of understanding and accepting the things of God they are still held they are still held morally accountable. They can't understand because they don't want to understand. They are perfectly happy where they are in their prideful sinful state. They like it. They enjoy it. They believe within their soul and very being that they don't need anything else. Sin has so corrupted the natural man that they don't understand and find God foolish. They're so wrapped up in their own prideful, sinful lives that they'd have no desire for God. Sort of like Romans 1. Whenever Paul describes, we traded the glory of God for an image resembling mortal man. So what did God do? He gave them up to their debased minds. Whose fault was it? It's their fault. Because of the sin that they are caught in and continue to enjoy and like. They love their pride. They love their sin. they have no inclination or need for God. They believe that the quest to become closer to God is a waste of time. waste of your time, a waste of my time. It is folly and foolishness. And then at the end of this passage, we see the reason because they are spiritually discerned, because the things of God are spiritually discerned, the natural man cannot and will not understand that. So this word discerned, has within it, in the Greek, a connotation of making a judgment about. So we saw them accepting, they were making a judgment, and in, in either accepting or denying it. Spiritually, when you hear something spiritual, we have to be able to judge that and make a decision about it accordingly. And we have that ability, and the natural man does not. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So we've had the natural person, we see what's going on with the natural person, and now we have the spiritual person. So the spiritual person judges all things, all things. Both natural or non-spiritual as well as spiritual. We discern them. We hear or we read and we make a decision based upon what we hear or we read about how we're going to believe it or not or apply it or not. So the spiritual man is someone who is aware of all things spiritual. Who is believing that there is a spiritual world that is far greater than what we can see, taste, smell touch that there is something else at work in the world the spiritual person relies upon God and his spirit to understand God and this world unlike the natural person we ask the spirit for his assistance in understanding the great truths of the Bible And what God reveals to us about Himself. Now, does that mean there's no need for study? One of my pet peeves is whenever somebody picks the Bible up and takes out a passage and says, Well, the Spirit just told me this is what it means. That's not how God wants us to deal with study in His Word. He gave us the ability to read, to research, to think, and to study. Now, all of a sudden, we think that the Spirit's going to come in and wipe out all those gifts to read, to research, to think, and to study when it comes to looking at His Word. No, that's why He gave us those things. The world has them, and the world uses them for other things. God gave us them so that we would know Him and know Him more. So whenever we pick up the Bible and we read a passage and we say, well, the Spirit just told me that this is what it says we're in danger. Now We study, we read, we research, and we pray for God to help to reveal us through His Word what He means and who He is. It's a squirrel I chased, but it's, it's a pet peeve of mine. So the spiritual person <clears throat> accepts spiritual things. When he hears them, he weighs them in his mind and heart, and he makes a decision about them spiritually. So we have that judging or investigating idea that we're talking about here. But he is judged by no one. Gets a little obtuse, doesn't it? It's a little hard to make this out. So the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. Who's the no one? Is the no one everybody in the world? Or is the no one just a group or a certain group of people? And as I said, it's a little confusing, but I feel confident that Paul is saying that the spiritual person cannot be considered or examined or judged by the natural person because the natural person thinks he's silly. The natural person does not have the ability to rightly judge and understand the spiritual person because they think they're goofy. They think they're silly. Because they sound like they're not even talking about the things of this world. We're not. Now, I'll show you, or Paul actually shows us, why the no one here actually means the natural person, and not everyone in the world. And verse 16 demonstrates that. He makes this transition. For who understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So Paul is giving us insight into why the spiritual man cannot be judged, considered, or understood by the natural man. And he puts it in the form of a question, doesn't he? And he so often does that. For who understands the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him or judge him or give him advice? And the question to that, or the answer to that question is pretty straightforward and easy. No one. No one. So the no one in verse 15 can't be referencing Everyone, because he puts us believers in the same category as Christ, because we have the mind of Christ. So with us sharing the mind of Christ, the natural man cannot judge or understand the spiritual man simply because they think that we're all a bunch of loons, that we're foolish, that the word of God is folly to them. Now, I think it's important that we not read too much into the fact that we have the mind of Christ. Having the mind of Christ doesn't mean that we know everything Christ knows. I think the point Paul is making here is that having the mind of Christ means that we are spiritually minded. Christ was way more spiritually minded than we all are. But we have a mind that is similar to his in that we are spiritually minded. And so the natural man cannot judge, meaning cannot consider, cannot rightly understand the mind of the spiritual person at all because it is folly and foolishness to them. Believers are spiritual and they understand the spiritual truths of God whereas non-believers are natural men and women. They do not understand the spiritual things of God. So when the question becomes, what does the natural man think of us believers? The answer should be obvious. That we're all silly. That we're foolish. That we're wasting our time, that y'all are wasting your time being here this morning. That's what the natural man thinks of us. That's what the world thinks of us. The church at Corinth didn't like that. Sometimes we don't like that, right? Who likes to be thought of as foolish or silly? Or someone to say that you're wasting your time? No one enjoys that. And the church at Corinth was so concerned about that that they turn this whole scheme that God has on its head. And they were promoting the things of the world inside the church. And Paul comes back and says, no, no. You're making a mistake. You're making a huge mistake. Don't try to be the same as the world. Because that's not God's economy, as I've said so many times here. Don't shy away from showing that you're a spiritual person. We have, innate within us, a desire to be liked, like I said. A desire not to be scoffed or laughed at or mocked. But brothers and sisters, I challenge you to to take that fear that we have And view it as a badge of honor because when we are laughed at when we are mocked when we're called bible thumpers when the natural man makes fun of us it is evidence that we are who we're supposed to be in christ love that be proud of the idea that god has given us the ability to have spiritual eyes and see spiritual things that the world does not And while they mock and laugh and ridicule, we are in Christ. And so I think the beauty of this passage is Paul is telling us what happens to us as Christians. And he's telling us, don't don't be so afraid of it that we want to abandon that, but use it as a badge of honor that we are his and he is ours. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for these words, for these simple truths that can be so difficult for us to understand. And Lord, while we know that we have spiritual eyes, sometimes they're not fully illuminating the words and the meaning that you have for us, Lord, and we just thank you this morning that you have given us spiritual eyes to see. And Father, if there's anyone among us this morning that views your word as a natural man, use it that views your word as folly or foolishness or a waste of time, Father, we pray that your spirit would intervene in their lives, that he would bring them to the knowledge and wisdom that you are God and we are all in need of a Savior and that Savior is in the form of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, that they would come to saving knowledge of you. In the meantime, Lord, as we go about our lives, let us not shy away from who we are in you but let us see the ridicule the scoffing the foolishness the world thinks that we are as indication that we are Christians and we love you and you love us and you have made us promises that we stake our entire lives on Lord and that you are glorified through that for as in Christ's precious name we pray Amen all rise let's all join together